0: This must be the place. My name's David Nichols. I'm an associate professor in urban planning at the University of Melbourne, and I have been a bad podcaster. You hear that a lot, don't you? People set themselves up to do radical things in podcasting. I'm not sure that Elizabeth and I really were going full radical, but we we um, we did have a kind of a mission to deliver something every two weeks, and. She's kept the side up to the best of her ability and I have let the side down. And I think you might remember the last time I was a, a full presence, if it could be called that, on This Must Be The Place. Sorry, I'm berating myself here. Um, I was uh, at least a little bit complaining about uh, my workload, and my teaching load, etc., etc., etc. And uh, so, you know, two book contracts... Um. Uh, an, an ex- excessive, is that, is that the right word? It's one of those uh, excessive teaching load is what I was going to say, but uh, as I always have to remind myself and I try to remind others when I'm complaining about it, which is a lot, um, my teaching load is actually quite a bit smaller than most people's at uh, most... Um, Educational institutions equivalent to my own, but uh, and I do have a lot of teaching assistants, so I should shut up about it and uh, uh, maybe just be uh, try to be try to be better at uh, at everything all the time. So anyway, uh, a few weeks ago, quite a few weeks ago now, uh, I sat down with Anthony O'Donnell, who's one of the authors of uh, a book. Excellent book called "Mosca's: The Greening of the Australian Labor Party," and uh, the book came out, I think, well, less than a year ago. It came out maybe at the beginning of this year, uh, and um, it's a um, it's a great piece of work. It's um, it's a very very interesting historical work about one of the uh, members of the Whitlam government from 1972 to 1975, who um, was, you know, maybe not the most famous, but as Anthony himself says uh, in this interview, was, uh, if nothing else, a visually very distinctive man, uh, and uh, also, perhaps more importantly, one might say, uh, a real presence in. Um, in the way that the Whitlam government changed—I uh, don't want to say changed everything, but you know, ninety-five percent of uh, of Australian society. Now, the title of the book, "The Greening of the Australian Labor Party," refers to uh, Cass's role uh, in uh, in environment policy, but Cass also did other things uh, during his time, and we'll we'll cover quite a bit of this in this reasonably short. Um, but I think you'll you'll agree, very informative interview. Um, so, no more umming and ahhing and um, prognosticating. Let's just go straight into this uh, interview with Anthony O'Donnell about uh, Moss Cass and the greening of the Australian Labor Party. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Anthony, tell us, first of all, um, many people listening to this would not be familiar with Moss Cass,
1: and maybe you could tell us um, some of the, why he's an important figure. Moss was a um, prominent figure in the Victorian Labor Party, in what was called the left of the Labor Party. Um, He trained as a doctor, and he was eventually elected as federal member for Maribyrnong, which covers our kind of... uh, northwestern middle ring of suburbs like Moonee Ponds and Nidri and Strathmore and Essendon Um, and it's now currently the electorate held by the leader of the opposition and he held that seat from 69 to 83 and during the life of the Whitlam government from 72 to 75 he held ministerial posts Predominantly minister for environment and conservation, and then from mid 1975 till the dismissal of the government, he was minister for media. Um, so he was what would you call a lower-ranking minister? In that ministers tend to um, have seniority according to the order they're voted onto the front bench by caucus, and in a ministry of 27 elected at the end of 72 he was number 26 elected and it was a bit unexpected for everyone Um, uh, so that's his background Um, and as he was really our first I suppose proper minister for the environment which is part of his significance I think the Gorton government had set up a junior minister outside cabinet responsible for um, Aborigines, Environment and Arts, um, and then when the Whitlam government was elected, um, Gough and his deputy divided up all twenty-seven portfolios between them for a couple of weeks. So technically, Gough was Minister for the Environment before Moss, but Moss was then elected um, and given the post of Environment Minister and given our first standalone federal department of the Environment as his bailiwick.
0: Now, the thing that the thing about the book that really, as I kept reading through the book, I was uh, just astonished to appreciate how much influence he actually had on subsequent events and that's 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 really to me is the take-home
1: from the book yeah look I mean I wasn't I I grew up in the electorate adjacent to Maribyrnong in Glenroy and we always had family and friends spread through those suburbs I mentioned and I think Moss probably fought about six elections in 11 years Um, so his his face he was actually a presence in my life there were always placards in gardens with the the guy, the funny beard, and what to me was an odd kind of hebraic name, Moss Cass, Mm -hmm. but I really didn't know anything about him, and then when I went to university, I became acquaintances with one of his daughters and his son, and I learned he was Minister for the Environment, but you're right, until I actually sat down and started work on this book, I had no idea of the the depth and breadth of his commitment to various progressive causes, and things like abortion law reform, homosexual law reform, um, and his role in this wonderful thing called the Trade Union Clinic, um, all on top of um, his role as minister for environment and media,
0: and it, it is quite extraordinary. One of the things I guess that we're introduced to early on in the piece in the book is his uh, relationship to the Lake Pedder scheme. Could you could you say a bit about that? Yeah.
1: So the, the Tasmanian government had very ambitious um, plans for their hydroelectric um, power. Um, from really the post-war period on. They saw it as a way of bringing industry to the state if they could provide cheap power. That meant building lots of dams. And um, when they started flooding Lake Pedder, In the early 70s there was actually a really big outcry and so Moss found himself um, sworn in as minister after the dam wall had been built and the waters were rising so this quite dramatic image of the lake um, gradually going under and Moss desperately trying to do something about it. Now um, the problem at the time was that there was no constitutional power for a federal government to intervene in a matter like that. Um, They hadn't signed the World Heritage Treaty Um, And it was ultimately the World Heritage Treaty that would give them the power under the external affairs power to intervene when it came to the Franklin. But back in 1972-73, that option wasn't open to them. So it was really just a matter of twisting the uh, Tasmanian Premier's arm. He was a Labour Premier, um, but he wasn't going to let his arm be twisted and Lake Pedder was lost. It's it's one of those great things that comes out in the book a lot, the old Labour versus
0: new Labour, for want of a better term. Mm you know um, a quite a di- quite a different kind of iteration of of Labor thinking, and the the Fabian stuff as well, I guess, that comes into that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we readily think of today's Labor Party as quite faction-ridden, but we tend to forget that it was just as faction-ridden back in the 60s and 70s, and particularly when it comes to Whitlam, we tend to look back and just think of it as um, a kind of seamless progression of reform, all under the banner of this man, Whitlam, Um, and we try to pick that apart, and partly it's because the moment I started looking at Moss's diaries. There were deep-seated animosities between him and Gough, and we took them up and ran with them, not because we wanted to settle scores, but just that we thought that was a really interesting window into the party and into the times. It's fascinating. It's fascinating the the number of
0: arguments that that Gough and Moss have and and the kind of, the way that they're settled or not is also <laughs> really fascinating. Um, it is quite a, it's a great insider look into the way that things were being done in the early 70s in... in yes, and
1: government. I think, look, I mean, partly it, it makes for good drama for what might otherwise be a, a dry account of certain things, but it's also, it does say something about the party. If you have um, a prime minister, 27 ministers and a caucus party room all of whom think they should be running the show. Um, then there's going to be fireworks, and there were fireworks. Um, I think it also shows a very different, two different styles of doing politics um, between Moss and Goff. Although to say that someone didn't have Goff's style of doing politics might be stating the obvious, because I don't think anyone had Goff's style of mm-hmm. doing politics. But definitely, they're coming from a different area. But also, one of the things we try to pick up and uh, Graeme Little's insight from oh two or more decades helped us with this. Goff was, um, he was brought up the son of a senior public servant. He had great faith in the public service, in parliamentary democracy. Um, you know, he was trained in the classics. Um, he had a fairly modest, really, technocratic reform agenda around, you know, sewerage for the suburbs, national health insurance, and independent foreign policy. Um, But if you think of the 60s and what was going on around, it was a lot wilder than that. It was, you know, it was all about extra-parliamentary protest. It was about participatory democracy. It was tune in, turn on, drop out. It was kind of almost a pantheistic vision of the environment and almost Dionysian image of human sexuality. Now, you kind of... I don't think Goff, given his background, upbringing and temperament, had any natural affinity for all that. Hmm. So our question was really, well, why did those things kind of hitch themselves to the to the party as a reformist party? And our answer probably is because people like Moss actually did have a natural affinity for a lot of those countercultural currents. Um, and you could probably throw in others like Jim Cairns and perhaps, you know, Lionel Murphy and Bill Hayden. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the, we're saying it wasn't all about Whitlam. I'd, I'd like to talk more about Moss
0: himself in a minute, mm-hmm. but I just want to have a... Quick, quickly go into whether there's been any response to the book from people in the more pure green parties or in the in the area of green politics do they feel is there any sense in which this is like a, an attempt to Take on the mantle of innovation in green politics by the Labour Party. Does anybody? I, that well, way? though
1: I haven't spoken to a lot, um, Moss's own son is um, has been quite prominent in the Greens Party, um, and he wrote a lovely piece actually in Mianjin last year, I think, in which he, as a kid, in the late seventies, he'd go up to his dad's study, and it was full of books on ecology and solar power and alternative energy, um, and it was basically that that made him a greenie mm. um, and he's happy to recognize that and Moss is happy to recognize that. Christine Milne sent a lovely um, letter to us for the launch in which she just spoke incredibly highly of Moss um, and said you know we've all got our little vials of Lake Peter beach sand <laughs> and you did your best and you know that was a defining battle for the Greens movement Um, and it partly became a battle because Moss wanted it to be a battle. So I mean that's just two anecdotal things where I think you can actually trace lines of continuity that everyone's willing to acknowledge between that kind of very early environmental portfolio and then really I mean I think the party has been overtaken by the Greens when it comes to the environment but that's an interesting development in itself.
0: Tell me, about, tell me about the process of writing this book. You have you have three authors here, one of whom is Moss himself. Yeah. How, does, how did it
1: work? So Moss retired from Parliament, as I said, in 1983, and he probably should have sat down and, and written something then. Instead, he gave a very long interview to the National Library of Australia's Bicentennial Oral History Project, um, which we had the transcript to. He kept the diary... Um, somewhat sporadically during his time as a parliamentarian but it wasn't until quite recently that he and Vivian Ensel decided to embark on a manuscript um, based both on those archival sources but also on his current reflections Um, and then I joined in as well and so I was kind of thinking of a bit a bit like the the, um, Literary equivalent of a TV documentary in which you have Moss as a talking head, but a narration by Vivian and myself to kind of frame it and to triangulate it almost.
0: Funnily enough, I think that the, the character of Moss comes through in his own... particularly in his own diary entries, but we don't get a good sense of what he did after. No,
1: really. no, we and don't. And we
0: don't get... We, we get that sense of him as kind of... You know, I guess he's um he comes through as someone who is... Um, Whose motivations um, are um, are quite um, well. I, no, no judgment in this, but pure in a sense. I mean, he comes through um, uh, work working for the for the greater good um, in a in a party system that he's or in a political system he's not necessarily that comfortable with. Um, does that does that ring true for you? Is yeah. That, look,
1: I mean, Moss's story that he'd tell about himself. I mean, he kind of presents as someone. Who was fairly lacking in ambition and just happened to get tapped on the shoulder and asked to do things and did them quite well and so got tapped on the shoulder to do more things. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, part of me is suspicious of that. <laughs> it's a somewhat it can be a self serving narrative. I think he was ambitious and I think he he got a lot of um, joy from politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I think most people who stay in politics actually find it fun mm-hmm. and and it gives them satisfactions and I don't think he's any different in that sense. Um, but as I said he had a very different style from some people doing politics he was much more willing to broker consensus and to um, you know do things that way as opposed to the crash through or crash approach of of his leader um, and then what he's done since he left politics um, has probably not been a lot he's worked behind the scenes he's stayed a member of the party um, and he's Still around, mm. important. I think of about mm. only um, three other members of the of, of any Whitlam cabinet. Um, partly because he was, I think, he was relatively young when when he went into cabinet. He was probably mm. only forty five. Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. So he's in his mid. To late eighties. Now
1: he's in his early nineties. Yeah, oh, yeah okay. and look, I mean, when we were cannibalising his diaries for the book, um, he kind of looked a bit worried and said, "Oh, I hope we don't end up defaming anyone unintentionally." And as Vivian pointed out, you can't defame the dead, Moss, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's basically outlasted most of them, so we fell on safe ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> the way that um, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people of our generation regard the Whitlam government. Um, and I felt I had that feeling again when I was reading this book, and particularly in those last, you know, six months or so when he's the the minister for the minister for the media. Yeah. Um, and I was just thinking, if only, like, not even, you know, if only they'd had a, another term of government, which I guess now, we, with hindsight, we can say that was never going to happen. But if only they'd stayed stayed in power for another six months to a year, so much could have would have changed, so much would have happened that we assume
1: would have been for the for the greater good. Um, do, do you get that sense? Yeah, yeah partly. Um, and look, I mean, I, I think as Minister for Media, he well, was only Minister for Media for probably about four, four months or four and a half months, and almost on a pro rata basis, he might have achieved more in that role than he did as Minister for the Environment. Um, and importantly, you know, he managed to talk the press proprietors into agreeing to a press council, which we still have, um, and he issued 12... Um, licenses for community radio stations, which basically became the base for our community radio sector. Um, Following that through, and a lot of that information was based on Henry Rosenblum's account, um, who was his private secretary and is now a a well-known publisher, um, things moved very, very quickly, almost with an air of desperation. So I suspect that they suspected that their days were numbered and they had to act very quickly I'm not, I can't remember when it was that the Fraser government first blocked supply. It was probably early October, but I think from then on they just thought we've got to get as much done as possible, as quickly as possible, because we don't know from day to day how this is going to play out. Um, and I think in, in, particularly with regard to um, giving out the radio licences, that's really the driver almost.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yes. I. Um, and I'm thinking also... Um, you talk about those things, and I think you're right. I and mean, so much was done. Four four and a half months is, you know, that is that is extraordinary uh, considering what was achieved in that in that time. You also talk about, and I f- I found this a fascinating concept, and I can't quite understand how it would have worked in, you know, in real life. But you, in the book, you do make a, a suggestion um, when he talks about um, the notion of establishing a a government funded national newspaper. And how that would operate, and the question would it be a daily, would it be a weekly? And then you, in the book, you say, well, in a way, that's kind of what the ABC does now with its with its website and its news dissemination through, um, you know, in an online. Quite apart from what the ABC does as a as a, you know, audio and video broadcaster, uh, and that that fascinated me in itself. I don't know if you have anything more to say about that. Maybe not
1: no look i mean it was news to me too um i did see i think in the paper more recently randall mcdonald talking about that um but yes in the end i suppose that distinction between a paper-based platform and a broadcasting platform is broken down and that's the point we we're trying to make but yeah it was a brave move I mean we again we had never had a minister a real minister for the environment before Moss mainly for constitutional reasons but we had never had a minister for the media before the Whitlam government either the inaugural minister was um, Doug McClellan who I think is also still with us Um, so it was new and people didn't quite know what to make of it and people did refer, is it going to be a ministry of propaganda and I think the idea of government setting up a paper probably would have only exacerbated those fears. But really, it was just, he was just arguing by analogy, we have an ABC on our TV and our radio, why not have a print equivalent of the ABC? You know, you talk about the,
0: the, the follow-through, the, the carry-through to the present day with a lot of the innovations that, that came through under various, you know, various CASS innovations I suppose we, we would say, um, whether by design or, or by accident and i was wondering whether you you know who you saw as your readership was your readership um you know
1: people well who are who are well i suppose that was one of from the from the early days that's something we had to consider there's very few people who um are younger than you or i who'd have any memory of moss as a political figure um and so the question was do we pitch this to a uh, an older audience that have fond memories of him and want to revisit the period but i also um we deliberately stressed the continuities that these issues are issues we're still fighting about now. So, you know, I was able to send out the invitations to the launch on the day they announced the um plebiscite on same sex marriage by saying, Look we've come a long way since BOSS decriminalised or helped decriminalise homosexuality in the ACT. Let's, you know, celebrate in the environment, as we've mentioned it already at one and media is another, um, you know, health care and um, costs are still an ongoing issue. So in the end, I thought, you know, that person, um, he's got 20 minutes to kill, um, you know, before a film at the Nova. Um, they're young, they're politically engaged, maybe in their 30s, um, they're interested in green politics, they walk into readings and they think, oh, I didn't know I needed to know about this man, mm. but I think I do. Mm. Okay, so it was partly to reach out to that.
0: much, no, there's a bit, but there's not much about Moss's personal life in there, which I guess is, you know, it was presumably a decision that you all made, and it, and I
1: yeah, you know, look, I think he,
0: it's totally mm, understandable in a way, but um, was there ever any um, talk about maybe making him into more of a, a character, the kind of appeal that you would imagine would work for younger people or...
1: Well, it was always meant to be a political memoir, and um, so it was going to be bracketed largely by his public political involvements of various sorts. Um, but we did want to give the backstory because how do you end up like that? How do you end up with such a commitment to progressive causes and the willing to kind of willingness to carry them through? Um, neither of us was a trained psychobiographer. I have a lot of respect for people who... Um, uh, like Judy Bread or Graeme Little or people who do that but I'm not um, trained enough in the idiom and the discipline to do that but you know I was struggling to make sense of him um, and I'd quiz him face to face sometimes about things you know how do you get to this point how do you get to this point um, but yes it's a political biography and I think his character as someone who is very unguarded and honest um, does come through something that
0: that we touched on earlier, which I think is, in in a funny way, uh, at least one of the major take homes of of this this study, is that so many of the things that that happened that we would probably regard as positive outcomes from a lot of the the, the various activities that um, Cass and others were involved in uh, in the early 70s, in the in the Whitlam government in particular, and perhaps before as well, when they they were often quite Influential uh, Whitlam and, and other um, Labour politicians were pretty influential in the late sixties, early seventies as well, and and driving a lot of um, policy in the in the, that last iteration of the Liberal government. Um, a lot of things just seem to happen by accident. There's a lot of outcomes that are just like accidental. Accidentally, they go well uh, from our point of view. Is that is that one of the the stories of of just Politics generally. Do you see that as a
1: as a as a, a theme in there? Partly, but I think Moss particularly would probably stress a lot of the grassroots work. You know, so there's two tendencies that we might have. One is to say it happened by accident, or the other is to say, "Oh, wasn't golf wonderful?" Um, and I think Moss would take a middle road. There was a lot. There's a lovely passage in there where I think he's talking about the overturning of the white Australia policy as policy for the party Um, and he basically just says this is how things get done it's a lot of people on the ground mobilizing for change whether it's people in the party mobilizing for change within the party or whether it's people wider mobilizing for change in society Um, and I think that's central to his political beliefs that it's it's pressure pushing up from below rather than things imposed from above. (laughs)
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Anthony O'Donnell about the book Moskass, The Greening of Australian Labour, written by Anthony, Vivian Ensel and Moskass himself. The book was published by Australian Scholarly Publishing and uh, comes highly recommended. This outro replaces many different attempts at an interesting outro, none of which came to anything. I've been trying all day. It got nowhere. It just wasn't... none of them were interesting. I need to take remedial outroing at podcast school. Uh, I, I think that's where I, I'm going to take a long, hard look at myself. I never can say goodbye. I guess is is my problem. We'll be back in two weeks with another instalment of This Must Be the Place. <laughs>